You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Let's talk about the film biography, yes, the biopic. People credit John Ford with the line, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. It's a line from Ford's 1962 film, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And though Ford quoted from the film often in interviews over the years, it was actually birthed by the screenwriters, James Warner Bella and William Goldbeck. Yeah, as the Writers Guild of America would say, writers wrote that. And it has been the guiding dictum of biographical movies since the form began, which might well be as far back as 1906 with the Kelly Gang about the notorious Australian outlaw Ned Kelly. This famous quote means simply this, if the legend is a better story than the truth, then go with the legend. If you're looking for historical veracity, don't look to Hollywood. Though many film biographies are very respectful, they are movies, and movies have to appeal to an audience and sell tickets. Some are more accurate than others, and some of them don't even bother to try. I produced the film Unbroken about my father-in-law Lou Zamperini's World War II experiences. When Angelina Jolie took it on to direct, she went to amazing extremes to assure the accuracy of the story, and it was just that. But there is also a newer, more modern approach to the film biography, injecting it with imagination, playfulness, and a personality. And this was sort of pioneered by our guests, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, with their script for Ed Wood, directed by Tim Burton. The film is fanciful, brash, and inspired, and one of my very favorite films. Hell, one of everybody's very favorite films. And now, though they had a big hit early in their career with Problem Child and have dabbled in the Stephen King universe with 1408, the film biographies that break the rules and go where biographers fear to tread have become their raison d'etre. With The Man on the Moon about oddball comic Andy Kaufman, The People vs. Larry Flint, The People vs. O.J., Big Eyes, and Dolomite is My Name, Scott and Larry have changed the course of the biofilm. We'll talk with them about truth, fiction, and movies right after this. Your homepage for horror is here. Fangoria.com is now live and brimming with the digital horror content that you crave. Fangoria.com is your destination for all of the stories that couldn't fit in the physical magazine. Long-form pieces deep dives, and daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, exclusive access to the Fangoria Vault, as well as a constant curation of our favorite links from across the internet. Right now, all current subscribers to the magazine are automatically members of Fangoria.com, and as promised, the content of the new issues will be forever in print only. If you're not already a subscriber, check out the new Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Use the promo code POSTMORTEM for 15% off right now. That's Fangoria.com. So you guys are a team, and as long as you have been writing professionally, you have been a team, right? Yes. yes. You never write apart from one another. 
Uh, no, usually because I, I think it really is because we're always slow and we're always late and we owe somebody else <laughs> a script afterwards. We never really ha- had an opportunity to break up because <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it, it was always something else happening. Uh, we've had a very blessed career. We were actually college roommates. Uh-huh, and so during we wrote, USC. Yeah, USC. And we wrote a script while we were in college and it happened to sell literally two weeks after we graduated and three weeks after we graduated we had an office at 20th Century Fox and we which, which of, movie was this? It never got made. It never got made never but got you made. had a nice office correct, on the lot. Correct. And we, yeah. we made Bloody Marys at five o'clock every day. Ah. We, 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 thought, <laughs> we thought that's what, that's what grown-ups did. <laughs> it's Hollywood. <laughs> so Scott, what is the process? I have worked with collaborators before but mostly when I'm writing I write on my own. And it, do you share the load equally? Does one of you sit at the type you know, at the keyboard and do the work, or walk around, or how do you do it? Um, well, you're looking at the office. Larry has two couches, <laughs> <laughs> so if, if 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 he gets bed sores on one, he can move to the other one. <laughs> and I sit at at that desk, but in that uncomfortable straight back chair with the computer in front of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in the room together every day. And you're at the desk, and he's on the couch. And we're, mm-hmm. we're just throwing stuff around. Uh, we uh, do scene cards for all our movies. So mm-hmm. we, we, when we're at that stage, there is a cork board around the corner, and we'll bring it out and do the, do the cards, old school. Uh, then we act out the scenes, and we're both frustrated high school actors. Mm-hmm. So we play all the parts, and then when it, 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 it sounds like a good run of dialogue, then I'll... I'll t- let Larry go back to the internet posting on Instagram and I'll, <laughs> I'll type up what we've been talking about. Yeah. Okay. So you're the typist of the yes. team. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Larry, you come from South Bend, Indiana, where a certain presidential candidate, uh, uh, hails from as well. Right. Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete Mayor himself. Pete. Yes. Um, so you were interested in film from a very young age, and you actually put together a high school TV show. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't actually put it together. It existed. I got very lucky. Uh, there was a television show uh, done out of the uh, NBC affiliate in South Bend, uh, and it had a little bit of money because it was attached to Notre Dame University. Uh-huh. And so, and it was, we're about an hour and a half out of Chicago. So it was kind of a, a nice medium market. Uh, but, uh, there was a television show that was started as a junior achievement project, but actually went much further than that, where it actually became like a, uh, uh an actual like TV show that people watched and it was, yeah, a, it, was a half, it actually had an audience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We weren't making like little, little, you know, little fake, it wasn't a fake business. You know, we were selling TV time. We were all, uh, basically the students wrote directly. Who are your advertisers? Advertisers were just like, you know, uh, Buick dealership, uh, Popeye's chicken and you know, things like that. I mean, we, we would, you know, the part of it was cute that we would have to go knock on doors and ask them to buy. Oh, you actually had to sell oh, ads? Oh, we sell ads. Oh my you God. You did the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. We did oh, everything. Wow. Um, uh, and that was, it was broken down because there were some people who joined the, the 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 company who weren't necessarily actors or directors and that was sort of about you know they were more like you know they would they would they would performers they would perform, you know, they would be like business people who were trying to uh, get they were that interested in ad sales correct correct <laughs> they were so um, this was a sketch comedy it show it was a sketch comedy show and it was uh, started uh, you know let's say in the early 70s it's actually pre um, SNL and uh, Second City TV very similar so you were um, video seers yeah, yeah. and uh, um, obviously you know, once those shows happened, this this became more like that. the The gimmick was uh, someone had taken takes over your TV uh, for a half hour, and the, we did channel switching. 
So right. we basically do sketches, usually television parodies, sometimes movie parodies, sometimes commercial parodies, and you'd be switching back and forth between various things. And, and do these turn uh, turn up on uh, uh, YouTube or anything? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Um, yeah, they're pretty go. good. We won the grand prize at the Chicago Film Festival one year, and a bunch of people are, are from the show are actually successful. Daniel Waters, who wrote Heather's. Right. Uh, um, uh, Dean Norris, who uh, was on Breaking Bad. Right. Uh, the woman who invented Blue's Clues. Oh, this um, is pretty great. Yeah, Dave Simpkins, who who, uh, who did Adventures Babysitting, Chris Webb, who who wrote Toy Story Two. So it was a uh, it was basically um, it was better than USC as far as turnout of working people, professionals. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, because here's the thing: because even though it was South Bend, Indiana, uh, it taught us how to get something done. Right. And I think that's something that Scott and I have in common is that we finish we learned at early age to finish something. And that's that's I think a lot of times people who throw themselves into into the arts, particularly in writing, you could write a script. It could take you five years to write a script if you want to write a script. But it, but Beyond Our Control taught me that you know you'd write you'd write a sketch in the middle of the week and by Saturday you're shooting it and on Sunday it was airing. And wow. so you 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 learned the, that process. Well, what was it like being a movie fan and a hopeful? At what age did you first want to start writing movies? Um, I wanted to make movies really early on. Right. I was just a very strange kid. I think my town was so uh, sports centric, and yeah. I wasn't sports centric. I was always a little fat kid, uh, <laughs> as opposed to the fat adult that I now am. A mind um, hopelessly trapped in a body. Yeah, exactly. And um, <laughs> and so. I really early on, like maybe eight or nine, I, I um, you know, I started I started looking at the movie ads in the paper, and I became totally fascinated by that. And so oh. my parents got divorced, and my dad got me one night a week, and he didn't know what to do with the kids, so I'd have him take me to the drive-in. And uh, it was the seventies, so like if you're growing yeah. up in the movies in the seventies, you're just seeing all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's like you know he'd fall asleep, drink a couple of beers, and fall asleep in the car, and I'd watch you know exploitation movies. But the, the, nice. that's the great thing about those days. There was no rhyme or reason to the to the to the bills. You know, there'd be you know exploitation movie, and then there'd be Panzer Carvel's Burn, and then there'd be the Sterile Cuckoo. Right. You know what I mean? It's, right. like, it's like none of these movies really belong together. <laughs> they just happen to have a print, and they're showing them. Right. And Return to Witch Mountain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, right. so, Scott, you're a Nick. native Angelino like me. Oh, you were. I am. What indeed. high school? Yeah. Well, I didn't go to high school here. I was outside of San Diego, but I was born here and brought up here. And then when the family broke up in San Diego, you know, all of that stuff. Okay. But um, my my <laughs> Thanks father for bringing up his pain. <laughs> I, I just assumed Mick went to high school. <laughs> I'm bleeding. I'm bleeding. Uh, but my dad went to Fairfax High. And, oh, my uh, mom yeah. went to Hamilton. And I went to Pally. Ah, okay. So were you in a Hollywood kind of community? Uh, you Did you discover film early and being in L.A., that access, did that influence what no. you wanted to do? Um, it, it, it seems weird because I, I grew up in West L.A., but, I mean, all, 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 the, all the family friends, you know, were... We're dentists and accountants. Ah, okay. I mean, we, uh, I, I think the closest thing we came to knowing someone in showbiz was a former Laker, Tommy Hawkins, uh-huh. uh, who was good friends with my folks. And, um, and, and he, he, uh, he hosted morning shows in L.A. in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess I did know the guy who hosted right. the Channel 9 <laughs> Wake Up yeah. Los Angeles show. And Ted Myers. Uh, Jerry Paris was around there somewhere. Jerry Paris. I, 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 met, I met Jerry in junior <laughs> high because I was in shows with his son, Andy. Well, Jerry Paris, for those who don't know, 
directed almost all of the Dick Van Dyke uh, show episodes. Every episode of Happy Days. And, yeah. And but, but, yeah, but this yeah. is... And more importantly, The Grasshopper with Jacqueline Bissett. Oh, well, anything with Jacqueline Bissett Police Academy 2 and 3. But no, I did not grow up around showbiz. Not not at all. The the only The only two neighbors I was aware of who were connected to showbiz were Don DeFore... Oh my! From we played the dad uh, on Hazel. Hazel. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he, wow. he he lived near us. That's before and, your time. And Bill Bixby. Oh wow! During the Magician. Holy shit! And here's the cool thing for you freak fans: uh, he had that cool sports car with the license plate that said Spirit, and clearly he had weaseled it out of the studio. Oh wow! Yeah. So uh, I, I never I never met Bill Bixby, I, but I do remember seeing him driving around in that Spirit car. Yeah, and, that, wow. and I was a big magician fan, so that was cool. That was a great show, and of course, my favorite Martian was where we were introduced to Bill Bixby. Well, was, he was—he started in like every show ever made. Yeah. Oh yeah, well, Incredible Hulk, <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah, hulking yeah. out most famous. Um, but yeah. no, I—I I, I did not grow up in show business. Um, I, I, I became interested in, in movie making. My parents were really encouraging. Uh, we had Super Eight cameras. Um, maybe like a lot of kids. Uh, I started with animation because you mm. can do animation by yourself. Right. I used to do that with my 8mm camera. Not Super 8, 8. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, you're a little older. I'm a little older. Um, One no, I ne- frame I, at a time. Yeah, yeah. I never had to sh- shoot in regular 8. Um, I, did, I, didn't, I still don't have any skills or talents with drawing. Hmm. So I would do cutout animation and, and claymation. Oh, wow. And, you know, and build the little sets. And I would, I would obsess over the 1933 King Kong and... And read the Willis O'Brien books and try to nice. figure out how to, you know, how, how to how to front project a person into a frame with a mm. stop motion creature. That's pretty sophisticated. Did you actually do that? No, I struggled with it. <laughs> it was, it's really hard when you're when you're when you're ten years old in your bedroom and your only crew is your mom. Uh, but then eventually I, I branched out to live action. And once you're doing live action, you have to have your friends. So. You know, then we started. And hope that they're talented. They don't have to be talented. They just have to follow orders. Right? <laughs> oh. And you know, and you know, I started you know making uh, you know little you know kung fu movies like everybody else. And mm. and then I started. Then my my parents for a birthday pop for a sound Super 8 camera. Ah, that's and, pretty in junior high school, and that was really cool. And so then I could start you know telling stories with dialogue. And uh, that was a that was a big part of my life, and Marx Brothers Obsession were a big part of my life. Wow! So I was I was really into so 30s comedy, comedy was, and, and and the yeah. Marxists specifically. Yeah. Right. But what's interesting is both of our our growing up stories is that there was this do it yourself kind of filmmaking camaraderie, right? Mickey know? and Judy. Yeah. yeah. Put on. Let's put on a show, and that's something I think we really brought. Uh, to both Edward and Dolomite is my name. We were familiar with the idea of of grabbing your friends and making a movie and not you know and putting the costumes together and you know it's just it, like you know it was just it's the way you know Rudy grabbed Ben Taylor and and all these guys and just just decided to make a film. It's DIY. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I mean, I remember uh, my my first sound movie opus was the Winnebago from Hell. <laughs> and uh, I think we were all around 14 or 15 and so none of us were driving age oh, right. and so then I actually had to you know con my dad into putting on the costume of my friend Harold so he could actually be the driving double 
because none of us could actually operate a vehicle. And you know, how but, willing was he do, to oh, do my, this? My, my folks were always great, just like playing ball with all my demands and and <laughs> giving me enough money to keep buying those little, you know, three-minute and 20-second cartridges yeah. of Kodak film. Yeah. You know, but it, like Larry's saying, in terms of the do-it-yourself, you know, you got to get the friends to show up for enough Saturdays and Sundays to make the movie, and then there'd be six months of editing agony because cutting Super 8 sound is just the nightmare of all time. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I got good at, uh, I always became chums with my high school principal and my junior high school principal, and I would talk them into giving me an auditorium. Wow. You know, for a lunchtime assembly so I could do a premiere. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Well, what's yeah. cool about these things is, is it sucks in people who, uh, who wouldn't ordinarily be... It sucks in the principal. Yeah, it sucks <laughs> yeah. in the principal. But then it sucks in the, you know, your friends who weren't necessarily into filmmaking as much as you were into filmmaking or into acting, but they become part of the, part of the gang and they yeah, become so excited yeah. about being a, a part of this movie. It's so the way Ed Wood grabbed all his buddies and turned Paul Marco into an actor, you know. Right. Yeah, it, it's funny because I, I look back at all my high school productions and some of the actors I was in play production with but a bunch of them were just my math nerd friends. Right. It was just, you know, Harold and Donald, right. Right. who were guys who went on to become engineers at Berkeley, and they had no interest in performing, oh. but they were just having fun having this weird sure. activity to do on weekends. And right. you need a warm body. I mean, you just need right. a warm body. And we always, uh, we always laugh about, uh, there was another a mutual friend we had at USC who uh, was also in the making Super 8 films when he was young, but he would do elaborate like political conspiracy movies like ooh, so he would make ooh. he would make the parallax oh, view Jeff. with uh with, with 13 a, with year a 13 year old <laughs> where like a kid is the president so they're, they're, and, they're and they're all wearing their dad's suits <laughs> yeah. and so there's a real there's a real bugsy malone quality these yeah. things or, or at least we were using the kids primarily to play kids you know but 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 jeff was always making these really he was making airport airport 77 yeah exactly but oh. both of you are talking about uh, filmmaking yeah. and you settled into screenwriting um, filmmaking is obviously more than that and, right. and the projectionist gets last cut and all uh, do either of you have intentions to direct further you've done a little bit early on in your lives uh, I mean certainly anybody who goes to film school assumes they're going to become a director right that, that is the, the goal um, I mean no one goes to no one pays for you know four years of USC so they can be a sound editor. <laughs> Definitely. But although you did that for a I while did. on I, low budget I, films, I, right? I loved being sound editor. I was you a music, were a music editor. editor yeah. Yes, sir. I I loved it. Worked with the composer Chris Young. Um, did Fly too, which I wrote. Oh yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, you but 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 film school, you know, people just sort of end up falling into slots, hmm. and people sort of discover other interests and people you know plenty of people say oh my god i love editing right and i don't really like being on a set and mm. i just like being in a dark room right and and i, I like, like drinking i like <laughs> drinking. i'll be an editor <laughs> you know it's a good job choice and you know it's and, a career and, and, and yes. plenty you know plenty of of film and tv professionals come out of sc every year and only a, only a small number are directors right you know, but we, we, you know, whatever. We we have plenty of friends from school who became producers and DPs and editors and, and mixers and what have you. Right. Uh, a life in the cinema is hard to achieve, and to be well, able to make your living that way is yeah, pretty yeah. fantastic. And, and, we, and we just stumbled into being professional screenwriters because we happened to write a script that sold two weeks after we graduated. Right. It wasn't a master plan. It just happened. 
Right. And, you know, while I think we'd probably like to direct again, we have a certain uh, success uh, level as screenwriters. And we right. are also one of the rare, uh, you know, uh, screenwriting team or just screenwriter uh, solo person that actually has um, uh, has left a stamp. In a weird sense, so, you know, it's silly exactly. to say... like what we yeah, were talking about. It's silly right? to say that you're an auteur as an author because that's really what the word means. But, exactly. but uh, we have a body of work that feels very much like Scott and Larry work, even though we're working with very uh, strong and singular directors. I mean, they, Tim Burton, Milos Forman, uh, yeah. Craig Brewer, uh, you know, Ryan Murphy, these are people all have real stamps, and the movies have their stamp on it in a gigantic way, but if you step back two seconds, they're, also, they're all Scott and Larry movies. Right, and there are very few writers who you see that stamp of the writer beyond yeah. the, the stamp of the director. Yeah, yeah well. I mean, when when I was younger, I, I, I used to read a lot about Billy Wilder and, you know, you know, Larry and I had, you know, sort of a contentious beginning famously with Problem Child. And, you know, Billy Wilder was part of that, you know, generation of writers who became directors just to protect the work. Right. Just so, you know, just so the bastard won't fuck it up. Right. Well, Preston Sturgis <laughs> yes. being the yeah, first yeah. of those. Sure, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, he wrote a spec script. That's how he got to direct. Exactly. And, uh, but once, once we did Ed Wood with Tim and Scott, Larry, and Tim all wanted to make the same movie. Yeah. And all three of us were really happy with the movie. And, and it was a really, it was a positive set. It was a fun experience. And then around the around the same time, I mean, I'm looking back now. Larry and I both had our first kids, and um, we, we might have settled into a, a lazy man's version of the career, where if our work was being executed well, and we could be home for dinner every night, <laughs> then, then maybe, you don't worry about protecting it. Exactly. Yeah. Then if. I mean, I, maybe I'm just sounding like a real lazy sack of shit. <laughs> you no, know, you but, like but, a but if, if Craig Brewer, you know, is the one getting up at 5 a.m. to, you know, to be on the set with Eddie at, at 6, and I can just stroll in at 9 and, <laughs> and say see hi, how things are going. See how it's going, grab a breakfast burrito, <laughs> hang out for a couple hours, yeah. and then go to the office, you know, write with Larry for six or seven hours, and then be home for dinner with my family. I feel I feel like I sort of got the best of both worlds. Right. So, Larry, do you feel the same way? Or um, because your career is such that if you wanted to direct, you guys could direct. Yeah. Uh, is there maybe a hesitancy about what if it doesn't work out as well as the writing? I don't think so. I mean, I, uh, we have directed, and and uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think that we have a certain confidence level. We, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why we're good screenwriters. We uh, we know what we want. Right. You know, we have a very uh, clear vision and, um, uh, you know, I think we could execute that vision. Um, uh, but, you know, so far we've been able to, you know, when you have someone like Milos Forman directing two of your films, it's no hard kidding. to it's hard to complain about that. You have really <laughs> one of the great directors of all time. Absolutely. You know, Tim Burton directed two of our films. This is like one yeah. of the great visionaries in cinema. And so, you know, you complement each other because yeah. I think Ed Wood is the best Tim Burton movie out yeah. there. Yeah. And it's it's a great Scott and Larry movie too. Yeah. yeah. So it's one of those things where um you know, uh, there's a less of a, oh, get out of my way, let me drive. Yeah. Quality to it. Uh, you know, um, we've just been, we've been lucky. We've been, we've been very blessed. For decades. Yeah, for decades. It, it's it's so. pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, that first, 
you're two weeks out of film school and, and making your, your sale and having offices on the lot. Right. Um, that was an amazing experience. But then you wrote a hit movie. Um, yeah. Problem Child was a huge success. Dennis Dugan was a, uh, an actor turned director who had tremendous success with this. So tell me about that experience, the whole starting your career in the studio level, not having to go through the Roger Corman level, the independent level, having a hit movie, and then moving on from there. Now, the, uh, the assumption, this might have been more me than Larry, was it was going to be the Corman School, uh, because during college, I crewed on a bunch of low-budget horror movies. Mm-hmm. And I Mostly was doing doing crew or actually crew. music editing. Yeah. I, well, boom, apprentice editor, PA, sound editor, music editor, bouncing around between a few of these movies. And what I, were some of them? Uh, the Power, uh-huh. Kindred, the Kindred. Oh yeah, Torment. Yeah. Ah, okay. the Jeff Obrow gang, if you remember. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and so I, I, I sort of spent a lot of time with, with Jeff, who, who sort of had this whole scheme where you you make a promo mm-hmm. which is you get a crew to work for free over a long weekend and shoot a, a fake six minute trailer right and then you go and raise three hundred thousand dollars in a limited partnership and you make the movie and I, I i saw this up close and my assumption was this is how i would break in mm-hmm. was making a movie this way mm-hmm. and so when larry and i sold our first script home records it just sort of turned all the plans upside down because all of a sudden, you know, I'm 22 years old and reporting for work at 20th Century Fox. Yeah, right. I mean, it's funny. I think I, I felt the same way because I had, uh, you know, uh, spent so much time in Indiana making this t- television show. It also felt like I was, I was, and my big hero at the time was George Romero. I always right. thought that would be the kind of, you know, that would be how, uh, how I would Pittsburgh do well. doing what he yeah, did yeah. entirely yeah. O-Tourist. Larry exactly. wanted to use a TV news crew. Exactly. Ah, which is what George did on <laughs> exactly. Night of the Living Dead. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And so also, um, and, and Mick, you, you and I might have had, had an overlap in this era, uh, which uh, Dr. Reed, Dr. Donald this, A. Dr. Reed, Donald A. Reed, president and, and founder, founder. <laughs> Dr. Reed in this Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films was a big part of my life. Yeah. Uh, I was introduced to it by uh, my high school health teacher of all people oh, who was just a that doesn't in, speak in well retrospect for health. Exactly. i think exactly. he was a bit of a stoner right. and he i don't even know why one day in class he said i just heard about this thing where you can see like 100 movies a year and they have a student rate of ten dollars <laughs> and i mean i i know i wasn't old enough to drive yet because I, I had to hit up my cousins to drive me to the movies when i first That's joined funny. yeah and, and they were all at SC. Uh, they were at SC, while. and then yeah. at the Gordon, the Gordon Theater, and, and the Four Star. After a rainstorm, any time at the Gordon after a rainstorm, and so, that was always. And fun. so you know, because of Doctor Reed, I, I was seeing so many low budget, scrappy indie movies, and you know the when when time ran out. Oh yeah, you know, and Tourist Trap, and, and Tour. Oh my God, I yeah. love Tourist Trap. Yeah. Uh, uh, with Chuck Connors, I love that movie. Yeah, um, and, and, and so Tanya all, Roberts. Yeah, and all, all these really resourceful, scrappy genre movies, and whatever. When you're 17 years old, these are the best movies in the world. Yeah. Right. And and so those were really making an impact on me. So this again, like Larry saying, the do-it-yourself stuff was really appealing. What's yeah. funny is Scott and I met each other uh, uh, standing in line. To get the the meal card at USC, like our freshman year, right. we hadn't even moved into the the dorms yet. Uh, and our very first conversation 
was about Herschel Gordon Lewis. Wow. It was about you know I found out that he was a he was a um, you know uh, in the film school and he found out I was in the film school and he knew I, I I said I was from Indiana and he's a local guy and so he started telling me about places to go that are cool in L.A. So it's like your first day at school. Yeah. And he, was, yeah. and he told me about yeah. the new art. And he told me about the new art. And, I told him about this thing called the New Art Theater. Which was yeah. at that time a revival house. And they were doing a, well, like a week of Herschel Gordon Lewis movies. Wow. And he'd never seen them. But I had grown up, I guess before, at the drive-in in Indiana. And so I grew up on Herschel Gordon Lewis Really? Movies. So you saw the Gore-Gore girls yeah. in the drive-in? I saw, I saw like Blood Feast, 2000 Maniacs, yeah, Color yeah. Me Blood Red. I had that, that the, the Gore trilogy. Yeah. Um, but it was one of those things where it's really weird that our career wound up, we wound up making movies about like sort of like scrappy, independent uh, exploitation directors. But And I literally, our very first conversation was about that. And, and yet, you didn't set out to make movies about the underdog. Um, right. No. You, but you had a big hit at a studio. But you and know, it's funny. You, you, the, you, hit, the hit led to us feeling like underdogs. Yeah, Dark Knight of the Soul. Yeah, because... It I, wasn't I mean, what we, you set right, out we, to we do. set out to write, uh, I mean, the two movies we talked about were War of the Roses and Ruthless People, mm. which were both R-rated. Well, a little fortune cookie thrown movies. in there, too. And a little fortune. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, I'm talking about yeah. Problem Child. That's what I mean, too, wasn't it? Or? No, that's Home That's Home Records. I'm sorry. You're oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. The, the Unmade Home Records. The Unmade Home Records. And so we were talking about these R-rated adult comedies, mm-hmm. and that was the, the movie we were writing when we wrote Problem Child. We were not, it didn't even occur to us that we were writing a movie for, that kids would go to. Mm-hmm. And then we got fired, and, it, and, it, and the movie got developed and developed and developed, and it became a movie for little kids. And But it's still fucked up. Yeah, the movie's really. out of its mind, and yeah. the, the kids, yeah. the kids' hero is a serial killer. Yeah. That remains from our yeah. first draft. Um, <laughs> but the the reviews were just god awful, atrocious, and so we we felt very disrespected. And then we had a long run where we couldn't get we couldn't book a job. Mm-hmm. We had about six months, and then we went in and pitched a Supreme Court comedy, and the studio guy said, "Well, that's a great idea, but you guys aren't good enough to write it." Whoa. And so we were just sort of feeling really down on ourselves and questioning sort of the choices we had made. And so we started talking about Ed Wood. Before you go there, I remember one particularly kind of weird moment where we were at the Universal Commissary and we were sort of eating lunch and we were kind of like sad. And I looked up and we were eating under a big poster for a mom pot kettle. Film. Oh yes, I mom remember that poster. Yes, and I looked down and I was like, "Who wrote that movie?" And I, I forget, I forget the names of the two. But I was like, "We're them." <laughs> yes we you know maybe we just have to accept the fact that we're not going to grow up to be you know Patty Chayefsky you know right. we're, we're, right. Like, yeah, we're, yeah, because, we're the guys who wrote the wrote Mom Pot Kettle yeah because right. when you were in that I don't know if it's changed because I haven't been there in 20 years yeah. but that Universal Commissary back in the 90s at least was honest about its past yeah, yeah. and there were Mom Pot Kettle and Francis the Talking Mule and yeah. just all this sludge <laughs> right. all over the walls all over right. they and, were proud of yeah. it and, and, and so we kind of knew that we we were the guys writing yeah. those program yeah. pictures right. we, were, we were cogs in the machine and so we basically, you know, we basically said to ourselves, well, we had all this, we had kind of success, what you think is success, you wrote right. a hit movie. Financial success yeah. and um, movies that are produced. And, uh, but we thought maybe we kind of started our career in the wrong way. And we, mm-hmm. we were like, let's write, like, let's go do that independent thing. Let's make right. a low budget movie and... So had, it was a self-conscious move to get away 100%. from that, that commercial studio-driven yeah. material. We, we thought yeah. we were going to write a spec that somehow would get, go get made for $2 million. Yeah. Right, right. And 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 uh, the medbeds at the time were doing the traveling 
Ed Wood show, which actually which I saw at the New Art. Right. And then they'd done the Golden Turkey Awards, and they had sort of made Ed a subject of mockery. Right. And Isn't it funny? Oh, isn't he funny? Ha ha, look how terrible he is. He wore dresses when he... When he uh, and when and he so we dresses. started saying, what if you told his... And this was like sort of like the moment where we sort of inadvertently kind of reinvented the biopic, which was we said, what if you took this completely obscure person that no one's heard of and the 11 people who have heard of him just make fun of him? Mm-hmm. And what if we flipped it around and we celebrated him yeah. and said, you know what? He had dreams. He moved to LA from Poughkeepsie and he directed six features. And he got to work with one of his heroes. Right. Yeah. And what if we just played up the positive? And then, and then, and in terms of you're saying the underdog, we were absolutely identifying with Ed in that moment. Right. Mm. Because when we made Problem Child, we weren't trying to make a bad movie. You know, I mean of that that was not. that was the thing. It was, it was nobody like no one, does. No one tries to make a bad yeah. movie. It's Some a, people do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a miracle if you make a make Sharknado, a half. Sharknado. They're trying to make a terrible movie. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There you um, go. So sorry, you know, Anthony. So yeah. uh, and the thing that we we I think we thought about Ed and it actually runs through almost all our characters is that there was a sincerity. In all fairness, Ed wanted to make Plan Nine from Outer Space. Right. He those are the movies he loved. You know, Rudy Ray Moore is not writing down to anything or or, or you know he he's making a movie he wants to see. He wants to see car crashes, titties, funny, and yeah. kung fu. And it's aspirational. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what that so it isn't like you know. Um, yeah, it, it, so so there's a sincerity to it, and we launched into that, and so there's a sweetness to all of our films because these people are literally going after their dream. They just are going in a completely different direction than the rest of society, which gives us all kinds of conflict because all during the movies, all these movies, their regular society is just saying, "You got to be kidding me! This what you you have no right to do what you're doing." Right. When there are people working within their resources, yeah. they're doing everything they can with threadbare right. resources. Correct. Yeah, but I mean, in the moment, we had no clue that writing Ed Wood was a good idea <laughs> because it was such a strange idea for a script. Well, you were doing it for yourselves first of all. Yeah, yeah right. we were we were just trying to please ourselves. Uh, though certainly we had pleased ourselves with the original script of Problem Child. Right. We were very happy with it and proud of it. Right. Uh, but we were trying to do something different. And I, I remember having some weird rule of three I'd come up with somewhere in that time coming out of film school, which was the first goal is to sell a script. The second goal is to get a movie made. The third goal is to get a good movie made. <laughs> and good. you know, am, among our little group of, of friends, you know, m- most people's first few movies are terrible. Mm. You know, whether you're you know you're punching up some slapstick family comedy or a low budget something whether, right. whether assignment a, stuff where there's a no. guy jumping out of the out of the closet with a knife or, you know whatever right. the movie is it, it, most of us you know have to work our way up to something of quality and also i think most people just want to prove that they can work in the system sure. right you know sure. there's like so I, oh i can do that you know i and think there's, there's some out, yeah. I, i'm gonna butcher the story but there's some um story where scorsese shows boxcar bertha to cassavetti's <laughs> and Cassavetti says, "Oh, you prove that you can make a movie like anybody else. Don't do it again." Wow! Oh. You know? <laughs> wow! That stings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn. And then, of course, he's, he became Martin Scorsese. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because he could have gone, "All right, all right." He could have become, you know, a guy who makes boxcar Bertha movies. Right. So wow. you're going from this studio experience to what you think is going to be an indie experience. Yes. yes. Writing a movie that you can't imagine a studio and then, making. And, right. and then put in context, this is early '90s, so this is yep. right after the, the whole Sundance. Sundance yeah. universe has, has taken right. off, yeah. and everyone's talking about you know Soderbergh and Spike Lee, and it's it's that thing is happening. Right. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of picturing ourselves as 
somehow navigating into that world. Yeah, and through uh, our friend Michael Lehman, uh, another it, SE kid. Yeah, um, huh. uh, the uh, got the idea of um, of maybe if we we thought Tim Burton would like something like this, and he was the hottest person on the planet at the time. Right. We thought like if he could do like Tim Burton presents ah. or something like this, so maybe, you could get an indie deal. Set correct. Up. I think we Are thought we, that because we had seen. The reissue of Kurosawa's Ron, which was Francis Ford Coppola Presents. <laughs> right, exactly. So we're like, well, if we can get Tim to do that. Yeah. Obviously, Coppola didn't work on Ron. <laughs> right, yes. 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 But he helped him get money. Yes. And so, uh, yeah, and so uh, uh, the idea was just that. And to have a blessing. Have a blessing. And, 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 and Lehman was going to direct it. Yeah. Ah. Oh, because we had, we, this is our He's our a thinking. good choice for that, too. Well, he was, um, he was coming off of uh, Hudson Hawk, which at the time was oh. the biggest bomb in, in Hollywood. Yeah. And we were coming off a of Problem Child. And so literally, we went to him and said, like, <laughs> what if the director of Hudson Hawk and the writers of Problem Child make a, make a movie about the worst filmmakers of all time? And, and <laughs> we actually like, had a pitch. We had a pitch. <laughs> and he thought that was one. the funniest thing he ever heard. Because, you know, they say, write what you know. And we know how to make terrible films. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but and, then and, it became and, and, and then yes. and then it just sort of it turned into the old USC mafia and that we you know we were friends with Michael from from film school uh Larry's friend Dan Waters had moved out from South Bend we were all living together when Dan wrote Heathers we gave right. the script to Michael he then put it together at New World with the producer Denise Novi now Denise who, was who running worked for Pierre David before yes, that yes but now yeah. she is running she also worked on Fraternity Vacation, piece of trivia. <laughs> uh, but now she's running Tim Burton's company. Right. So Michael can give it to Denise saying, if you like it, give it to Tim and see if he'll put his name on it. So it was uh-huh. like that little chain of, of events. And then Tim saw our outline and said, gee, I'd love to direct this. Wow. So there was a Golden Door opening number two. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the Golden Door uh, had a crazy caveat, which was that uh, Tim had been prepping Mary Riley for over a year mm. and it was a big expensive period you know castle movie with right. a, effects in england and yeah. bats or whatever the hell it was yeah. <laughs> and uh and, and he and he was a little ambivalent about the movie and that he was sometimes you know, about tim, mary riley yeah, yeah sometimes tim would sort of as he said get back into the mcdonald's deal <laughs> in that there's a release date right. and there's and there's a kellogg cereal and happy meals coming out and so you have to start shooting at a certain point. And that, and that drop-dead date was coming up. And we talked to Tim's agent, Mike Simpson, a lovely man. Yeah, he was said, my agent briefly. Yeah, and we love Mike. And then Mike said, look, guys, t- Tim seems really interested in whatever the hell this thing is. You're trying to cook up here. I can stall Sony six weeks. I do not have six weeks in a day. I have six weeks before he has to go pay or play. Right. And so you got, you got five weeks and six days. Hmm. And and we were not hired. It was, it was still a spec, but we knew we had this weird opportunity where we could maybe knock out Mary Riley and get Tim Burton to direct our movie. But he he had we would have to love the first draft, right. and we had to deliver it in five weeks and six days. So he just loved the idea of it. He hadn't seen a script yet. Well, no, no, it was a there pretty. Was, there it was, wasn't. Oh, okay. It was a, wasn't was an outline though. And the outline like nearly, three, four, three four pages. Yeah, but, okay. but it is. If you read that outline now, is our outlines are pretty close to what the movie is. Right. Um, and so we just locked ourselves in a room and we wrote, uh, we wrote the the first draft of um, uh, of Ed Wood in six weeks. And, and it, you um, know, it came in at 147 pages, which is long. It is. Um, but we didn't have time to cut. Because we had to get the script into Tim. Yeah. Right, right. And uh, he got it on a, on a Friday night, and he called on Sunday. He said, I 
love it. It's my next movie, and I have no notes. Wow. Wow, indeed. So did you write, uh, did they shoot a white script? Uh, for the most part, yes. The, yeah. the yeah. only real changes, um, what's funny is I, I, my wife's been cleaning out her closet and I've been finding old papers. And I, I found uh, the sheet from our AD, which was Bill Murray's schedule. Oh. And the changes we had to do were to accommodate Bill. Because wow. Bill was sort of the specialty number who was parachuting in and out of the movie, and we right. could get him in little in blocks. And the character right. of Bunny was just part of the gang, so basically, so, we had so to, yeah, we had to adjust. Yeah, we, if we, he was in a scene, everybody was in. The if, scene. If, yeah. if, if Bill's going to be in a scene, he's got to have something to do. He has to have something to do. He mm. can't just be in the background of the Brown Derby scene, right. right? And and so we we did adjustments for Bill, but that, so you built up the role. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we built up the role in 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 the good scenes, right. and then. The Cut scenes that don't matter, things. we took them out. Yeah, yeah. Right. But he gave a specialty number. Th- yeah. Those were really the only changes we did. And there was a little bit of a lift. At a certain point, it was a production manager lift where basically uh, Ed had like a, a, a brief marriage to another woman. And that uh-huh. was, you were able to literally lift up like like 10 pages. And, and, and not, no one even no knew. One right in the middle. Yeah. But other than that, he, they, he shot our first draft. Well, what's amazing about Ed Wood is, first of all, it's a studio movie. Yes. It's a black Isn't and white studio Isn't that crazy? Movie. Yeah. It's a yes. studio movie. Can you believe that? And it's a black and white studio movie. And it's yeah. a Disney studio and it's movie. And it's a 20, <laughs> $20 million black and white yeah. Disney studio right. movie, right. which, you know, when you're talking about Ed Wood, $20 million sounds outrageously expensive. Actually, only 19. We only had 19. Nick. 19, even better. Nick. But for a studio, that yeah. is a very low-budget film. Right. Um but the film was not financially successful despite mm, the reception no. and the way everybody feels about it now. It was not a big box office success. No. And yet it kind of redefined your careers. Well, it redefined our career in a, in, a, in, a, in a way because, and I think it actually taught us a little something about Hollywood, which actually is kind of a good thing to learn about Hollywood, was we had written a hit, uh, but that wasn't very good. Yeah, that you and didn't people like. really didn't want to work with us. So uh, we, the fact that we wrote something that actually was really good, despite the fact that it didn't necessarily make money, it was, people were really eager to be in business with us. And, and it was like, uh, and because we had been typecast as the people who write the shitty kids movies. Like Agent Cody Banks. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, no, I like that one. Yeah, I like yeah, that one too. But, but I mean, but, it's yeah, a yeah, kids movie. Yeah, yeah, but I'm I don't saying mean a that shitty kind of thing. Movie. Um, it's the, a good um, kids movie. Um, yeah. uh, this, we sort of used it. We are like, hey, wait a second. Hollywood likes to put you in a box. Maybe we can get another one of these made because there's certain heat on us right now. I mean, Ed, right. Ed Wood wound up winning a couple of Academy Awards and yep. was nominated for Best Picture, the Golden Globes, and things like that. So, uh, and we had one other idea, which was also comes from our college days, which was uh, Larry Flint, uh, right. which we thought was a, a crazy idea because when we were roommates, it was that whole period where Larry was throwing oranges at the judge and, and yeah. you know, wearing a diaper to court and have, claimed he had the DeLorean tapes and stuff like that. <laughs> and that, that was kind of in the front page of the, the second section of the LA Times, the Metro section. And we'd read the articles about it and it read like Marsh Brothers routines. They were really hysterically <laughs> funny. And no one had ever... I think d- we might even have been <clears throat> saving the articles. Yeah. They were so uh, crazy. And just the fact that like no one had ever looked at his life because he was so, you know, he was he was Larry Flint. You Such know, he a was, sleazy yeah, outsider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so we thought there's a there's a twisted version of the American dream there. Uh, and and with a gigantic uh, you know, civil uh, not so uh, uh, you know, first amendment uh, court victory at the end. So we wanted to be, we would call it a Frank Capper movie with porn. <laughs> yes, it was an R-rated Frank Capper yeah. movie. Yeah. So, did you realize that you were adding to the change in your career here is two in a row biographical films. Yeah. I mean, we weren't, we, we've never been premeditated. 
we've always been completely slapdash with any with what happens tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but we noticed, but Fortune had made the movie, but just when the script was moving around town, that we were getting a lot of requests for general meetings. Hmm. People just wanted to meet the people who wrote the script, the Edward script, and that didn't happen in the problem child days. People didn't want to meet us. And I think wow. also we were movie fans enough that we recognized that, you know, genres usually have periods where, you know, there's Western has John Ford and then along comes someone like Peckinpah or Leone and there's a revisionist Western and then there's feminist Westerns. They're, they're sort of like, you know, uh, musicals have different periods. Uh, the biopic has always remained that boring three-hour biopic about a great right. person. The history about, lesson. The history yeah. lesson. And this, he was born in this house and he went to this place and he married <laughs> that woman. in Illinois. And yes, then he, then yes. he oh, I cannot tell a lie. You know, there, there is, <laughs> and, and whether the music swells. <laughs> yeah. And even when they're great, something like Patton or Gandhi and they yeah. win Best Picture. Oh, Patton's great. Yeah, Patton yeah. is unbelievable. Uh, Francis Cord Coppola wrote this. Yeah, movie. yeah, exactly. Yes. That's a great movie. But, you know, they still have like, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you know, when you're going through your DVD collection, it's like, do I have two days to watch this? You know? Right. So yes. they're always that. And so we thought, hey, wait a second. No one's kicked the biopic's ass. But, but Larry, we weren't. I think we, by, the second, we had by, a, by the second film we did. I by, think, by, we, by I think time, we were having fun. Yeah. And we were recognizing that we didn't get fired off. Pro, no, we got fired off Problem Child five times. We didn't get fired <laughs> off Ed Wood and we didn't get fired off Larry Flint. And we, and I mean, Larry Flint, we had so much fun working with yeah. Milos yeah. that it was a bit of a, why not continue doing this just because we're making a, we're making a stamp. The movies are being well-received yeah, and we're having fun and, 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 and our movies are getting good reviews. Right. Mm-hmm. But we did come up with the whole thing. We had a whole little shtick where we'd be like, it's a, it's anti-biopic and it's a, you know, the yeah. anti-great man story and no, stuff I'll, like this. I'll so, give credit so did. to one, one guy who, who's, who, who, smacked us upside the head was around the time that we were uh, putting together the idea for Larry Flint. Uh, we had a, a general meeting with, with uh, Jim Brooks. Jim Brooks wanted wow. to meet us. Wow. Who were the guys who wrote that Ed Wood script? Really? And he says, so he just wanted to check us out. And, and he like, was one of the most powerful guys around. Writer, yeah, producer, Jim Brooks director. Jim Sony I mean, in the huge. 90s. Yeah. yeah. And he's sort of like, well, what are you guys up to? And we said, well, we're, we're thinking about maybe doing this thing about Larry Flint, but you know, we don't want to get, I remember saying this to him, we don't want to get typecast. <laughs> and he said, dummy, <laughs> you should be so lucky. Yeah. Most writers in this town spend their entire lives trying to be known for anything. Yeah. You guys have something you do that no one else does. Run with it. Good advice. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so the man on the moon. Yeah. Well, no, that I want to pick up really quickly on something you said sure. too about not being fired. That was a, that was a, an interesting thing we learned as these movies went on. Was that if you're writing a family comedy, you can be fired at any moment and be replaced. You should be fired. Um, <laughs> yes. um, if you're uh, not, then you're in trouble. But because we were making movies about fairly obscure people, that there wasn't a lot of common knowledge out there, mm-hmm. that we became the historians. And right. so we wanted, even though we're working with uh, directors on the level of Tim Burton and Milos Forman, 
we were brought into the production in a way we weren't actually on on on, on some of the on the comedies where that that we were actually like you know Tim would I'm say I'm not sure we ever met the production designer yeah. on Problem Child. <laughs> well, the um you know it would be like uh, oh what is what is you know what is what did Bella House look like? Do I think Scott and Larry have pictures? Go talk to Scott and Larry. Right. You know is this true? Is this not true? Oh go talk to Scott and Larry. So there was so an involvement on there was much an involvement level. and yeah. it almost yeah, felt like you were production sort of, design yeah. and, and costume and location scout. Yeah, and so it was yeah we, we actors would want to talk to us about like did this really happen? happen and mm. so we wound up being really a part of the production almost like producers without getting the producer credit uh and so we enjoyed that and we became the doris kearns goodwin of, of whatever the project <laughs> was uh and so that that that's what we can how we continued well tell me a little about the importance of veracity in in your work um is it uh, shoot the legend or uh um well I mean, how with, important is the truth i mean the with tr- ed wood with ed wood and larry flint there almost was no legend I mean, I mean, it, it, it's hard. There's a very happy ending in Ed Wood. Yeah, but that didn't but, but yeah, it's, it's hard to look. It's, it's hard to look back at the movies now and go that these people were so unknown before we came along, mm-hmm. and that you know there, there was no book on Larry Flint. Right. You know, we had to go do a lot of Just interviews. Hustler. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. There's Hustler. There's, yeah. there's, there's a publisher statement in Hustler's in Hustler every month. And we Xerox every one of those publisher statements and, yes. and like circled things and yellow marked them and, and you know. Yeah. So so I mean. The, 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 the legend was really just the facts. You know, he, he got shot going into a courthouse. Right. He right. went to the Supreme Court against Sherry Falwell. You know, it, those are the greatest hits. He got arrested by Simon Lee in, in Cincinnati. I mean, we like to tell the truth. And we also, because we're doing uh, such odd material, it is one of, the, I think, the reason we like doing it so much is that truth is stranger than fiction. Mm. That, you know, these movies behave in a different way and they, they sort of, uh, they're, they're much more eccentric. And so for us, it's all about like grabbing that right. and, and, and turning it into a film. And also, um, you know, the, the, the things that, that help us in making dramas, you got to take someone's whole life. And turn it into two hours. Right. So you have to condense everything. You got to just keep on stirring the pot and make things and whittle things down. Uh, and so you know, in terms of truth and not truth, yeah. Well, you if you set up, uh, like for example, and, and Dolomite is my name. If you set up uh, Ben Taylor and Jimmy Lynch, they're going to be Rudy's friends for the rest of the film. And they were Rudy's friends all right. his life. But you know, maybe they weren't at that one scene or maybe they weren't somewhere else, but they're, they're now the, they're now the characters in your film that you're going with. And your storytellers. And your storytellers. You're correct. Not necessarily correct. biographers. Right. Yeah, strictly. I, I, right. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at the Ed Wood poster over there. And, uh, I mean, to any, you know, to any screenwriters out there, I mean, we would do research, 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 but you never find out how people meet each other. That just tends to be lost to history. Mm. And we got very, if, if you really take a step back, we got very silly with all the introductions in Ed Wood. And that, how does Ed meet Lugosi? He's in a coffin. <laughs> how does Ed meet Criswell? He's reading minds. Mm. You know, when do we first see Vampira? She's on TV in her, in her low-cut black gown. Right, and you have the introduction. Yeah. yeah. How, no, do you, exactly. how do we you all... meet Tor? He's, he's picking up a man and throwing him out of a ring. Right. You know, and, and so if you, if you really look at it, you go, oh, these are ridiculous introductions. Scott and Larry are just being a little silly here. Mm-hmm. But that might have been, you know, print the legend. Yeah, but, there's, but I think we've carried it on in our other work where it's uh, you meet you try to introduce the characters iconically. Yes. That's the, you know, what they're, like, whatever. Johnny Cochran in The People versus O.J. Simpson, you introduce him in his closet going through, uh, like, 500 different colored suits, you, trying to pick out mean, what he was. You right. meet Larry Flint 
yeah. as a kid uh, being a moonshiner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Peddling. Yeah. Pe- uh, peddling. Peddling illegal liquor. Good story. You know? Yeah. yeah. And but, there's, 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 you know, whatever. There's, there's, and that's a true story. That, right. that is true. He actually did as a little kid. Right. But you meet him. You meet, he's a he's a he's a rebel. He's a huckster. Uh, and so you always try to, you know, well, yeah, you man on the moon. You meet you meet Andy as as a kid uh, talking to the wall, pretending he's a TV star. Mm. Right. And and that's a fascinating movie because people knew Andy Kaufman from his stand up and mostly from Taxi. Right. I but would say ninety nine percent from Taxi. Ninety nine percent. I think you're probably right. I met him a couple of times, and he was as spacey in person as you would imagine he right. would be. Um, I don't know what your experience during your research and everything yeah. was for that. Well, what was interesting is um, uh, you're saying people people know him from Taxi. Uh, I remember M- Milos Forman talking to us once after the, uh, during the release of the movie and saying it's uh, it, you know that we we've always we called our movies anti biopics, but this one actually was an anti biopic. He'd be like. You know, you come out of the movie knowing less about Andy Kaufman <laughs> than you did when you entered. <laughs> it's like, you, know, you go and say, oh, yes, I know him. I like him very much. He's on Taxi. He was very funny as Latka. Oh, I don't know this person. <laughs> it's impossible to know a person. He hated Latka. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and, then, and then because our, our thesis was we're going to make an Andy Kaufman film. Right. We're going to make the film that Andy would have made about Andy. Right. Right. And so Which Andy really was at, so Andy was at war with the audience. Right. And so we were at war with our audience. Had you ever seen any of his live shows? Uh, we've the tapes. Seen, yeah. We, we tapes, had a, yeah. oh, no, had I a went lot to of, a couple of his oh, wow. comedy oh, wow. club shows. One uh, at the, you know. the famous one with Lily Tomlin. Uh, where, where? Drunkenly at the comedy store. She was yelling at him for the sexism of his act. She was very... Oh, wow. Uh, was she in the audience? She was in the audience of mm. this very special first opening night at the comedy store. Wow. And she had had a few too many drinks and was maybe rightly upset by the sexism of the the characters in this, but it was exactly what he wanted. Mm. It was exactly what he went for. And I saw him at the Improv. And probably prearranged. I don't You'll think in this know. case it you was. You never know about Andy. <laughs> you never yeah. know. But I saw him at the Improv a couple of times yeah. as well, and it was. And Milo saw him a bunch of times. That yeah, was, uh, this this, this was... project actually came for us to oh, us yeah, from. He, he did. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, for, I'm forgetting. Where oh yeah, no, he saw him. He saw him at I believe at the, the um I, I don't know the name of the club, but him and Danny would go and uh when because because he knew Danny from I'm forgetting this from yeah yeah because he, he he would he would see him and that's where he became totally fascinated because uh, uh, uh well, like all him. things in Hollywood, this movie started Michael Douglas's. 50th birthday party <laughs> which was Danny and Milos ran into each other and then Danny started telling Milos crazy Andy stories yeah wow but I, yeah. I'd forgotten that they had oh, yeah. seen him yeah no, no Milos, Milos definitely had seen him a couple times never seen shows like the Kaufman shows there was yeah. one that um, was at the at the improv at like one in the morning and saying they were doing it live for broadcast in Hawaii. Oh, that's hysterical. Which was not at all true. And sure. they treated it like an hour-long cable show and their acts falling apart. And it was, I'd wow. never seen anything well, like fantastic. it before that or fantastic. since. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was amazing. It was really great. <laughs> we, well, uh, George Shapiro and his manager had kept every tape ever recorded. Mm. And so he shared it. He gave, he gave us everything. And, and we had a piece of half inch or three quarter of Andy at one in the morning at the improv hmm. where he had rented a washing machine <laughs> and dragged it on stage. And he came out with a basket of laundry, <laughs> put it into the machine, stuck in the quarter and then just sat down and started reading a magazine. 
and you can just hear the nervous laughter from yes. the audience, and they're waiting for the bit to stop. And the bit's not going to stop until the load is done. <laughs> until the laundry's done. Yeah. It's so well. Kind of the first conceptual comedian. Yeah, really. yeah, 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 yeah. In ways that um, you mentioned, we, we, oh, we had a fight with Milos to keep Great Gatsby in the movie because Milos just said, "This is," he said. I appreciate it, <laughs> but it's just, it's like, you know, we, he was showing it to friends in the cutting room and people are just running, fleeing from the cutting yes, room. Yeah. And, Enough. and we said there, we said there's a short way to do it. He says there is no short way. And to Milos's credit, he said, fine, get on an airplane. And we flew to New York and Milos said, fine, you recut it. Oh. And just sat down the back of the room with his cigar. And I, I just sat down at the Avid with the editor. I was like, all right, chop out the stuff. Because we were fighting to keep some version of Great Gatsby in the movie, which uh, is just Andy daring an audience to stay in that theater. Right. That was just a good thing about Milo. the Great yeah. Gatsby. Milos liked to, you know, whatever. He probably, you know, he, he would he would discard things, and he didn't. But he was very much uh, he loved getting other people's opinions and other people's input, uh, and so that was that was one of the great experiences. With and him. it worked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this also just a nice Milos story for any filmmakers out there. Milos would watch the entire movie each morning mm-hmm. in the cutting room, yeah. which mm-hmm. I thought was crazy. It's great. But that was his, that was his process. That's a great from process. top to bottom. Yeah, and if you made a if you if you recut a scene, he would back up like oh yes, it would drive oh, us crazy. Yes. He'd back up like fifteen minutes, and you'd have to watch fifteen minutes leading <laughs> up to the scene. Yeah, we we would say what like, we're not sure you need the close up after he gets out of the car. He's like, you're right. <laughs> let's start from the beginning of the reel. Like, no, pre <laughs> <laughs> digital. What's uh, you know you talked about Andy as the first conceptual comedian. Uh, what's been very cool, uh, and this is now twenty years later. Oh my god! Is that? Oh my god, it's twenty years. Is wow. that? Um, oh my god! <laughs> uh, because the movie stars Jim Carrey, it's a lot of kids' first R-rated movie. Wow! And, or they watch it on HBO when they were ten or something. They so thought they were getting a getting, Jim Carrey. Comedy. Correct. And so this is the first time they 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 got something different. Yeah. And so it's uh it's it sort of like implants this little seed of like what what the hell's that? You can you know you can you can fuck with the system a little bit. You can you can you know you can wow. be a comedian. It doesn't make people laugh. And so uh, <laughs> I, I think a, a, a lot of my kids' friends. It was their introduction to Meta. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. which that's is sort a big of step. stepping outside the story. Yeah. yeah, so that's very nice when you meet like a you know a thirty year old guy now and he or, or a girl now and they're like, oh my god, you know that's my favorite movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to go anywhere without this recent turn in your career yes. into television. Yes, The People versus OJ again has very much the Scott and Larry personality injected into what would have otherwise been a very prosaic TV miniseries like something we've seen many times before. Yeah, no, we um uh it's funny, we'd never done television before. Uh but the second we heard that Nina Jacobson and Brad Simpson had gotten um uh Jeffrey Tubin's book, we were like, "Oh my god, that's a, you know, we wanted to do it, yeah. uh, and because we would never do it as a movie, because as a movie you'd just be telling people what they already knew, and just the, you know, page ten would be the Bronco chase, and you'd be one scene, and you'd move on. Because everybody does know that story. Everybody yeah. watched it live. And so what we yeah. thought was yeah. great what was great about the, the mandate story, was show the audience what they don't know. Yeah, yes. was also also to have ten hours to explore all the different issues that the that the that the trial brought up and to have, you know, 20 years distance from the thing where you could actually like digest all this and figure out what it all means and put it in context for today. Right. And what was the experience? How was it different from doing features going into television long form? Uh, I mean, the, 
it, it's funny because we went into it with nobody who had ever worked in television on the project. Right. Ah. Uh-huh. Nina and Brad were featured people, and we were featured people. And FX, uh, I mean, we we knew John Langraff going back to Jersey. Jersey back in the '90s, and so not New Jersey, Jersey films. Yeah, and, and <laughs> right. we knew Danny from Jersey, DeVito. Yeah. Danny DeVito from the old neighborhood. <laughs> and, and so they were completely accommodating in that there were no deadlines, there was no oh we we need to have this for the upcoming sweeps. So there was just nothing. We happily fell into this world of research, research, and then we would have these what we called salons with Nina and Brad where we would say, let's just talk about sexism and how Marsha was treated differently. Let's just talk for an afternoon. Mm-hmm. Let's let's just talk about the LAPD's history with blacks and how that impacted things. And and then we and, and we would just be scribbling down a million notes and uh, and then we and then we would just we had Jeff Tubin's book, which is fantastic. Well, mm-hmm. everyone on the trial wrote 11 books. So we would, <laughs> oh, wow. we bought everyone else's books too. And wow. just to get everyone's perspective. And so we were just happy. I mean, I, we knew this was something different for us because we'd never done TV and long form was something different for us. And, and it's not a very playful story. Really. No. Yeah, but, but, it, but it's not a playful you, story. But I think what, what we appreciate about it is the absurdity. I mean, exactly. there, there's, but at the at the center are these really serious issues. Right. But I think one of the things we learned from Milos Forman is that is that life has a combination of tones. It's both sad, it's tragic, it's funny, it's weird. And OJ had all those things. And we could put, there were so many topics where it felt like it was the ground zero of, in ter- you know, uh, whatever the birth of the twenty four hour news cycle and and reality television, having those Kardashians there. You know, there was there was a way to make it Scott and Larry. Well, that's what I <laughs> yeah. was going to say. It's still a very Scott and Larry yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I mean, when we were figuring it out, I mean, I, I kept thinking back to People versus Larry Flint, which which was probably the closest. They were all people versus. Work. So, yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and that um, that movie took on big ideas, but it was very playful and outrageous and funny, right. and it also got very tragic and sad. Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well... You're back. Well, it's kind of a hybrid time for you now yeah. because Dolomite is a movie made for a streaming service. Yes, correct. For, for Netflix. Yeah. So though it's played on big screens, almost everybody will see it or is seeing it yeah. on Netflix. So tell me about that experience. And once again, it's an underdog, a guy who made cheap, cruddy movies to yeah. a lot of people <laughs> yeah. who ended up having you know something really personal put yeah. out there. And, no, it, an it, of it's been did. an extraordinary experience for us. We just, uh, I can't remember a project that we just had such a great time on. And, and the people always say that about their movies. But this movie was just just a total delight. When you're think, think of it, you're just able to go down to the set every day and, hey, it was going to be Eddie Murphy and Chris Rock. You <laughs> yes. know, it's just like, oh, my God, you're, you know, you're, literally, you're literally with legends making a movie about a legend. And yeah. we were obsessed when we were in college with, the, with Rudy Ray Moore and just uh, uh, we so saw... So that's where it started. Yeah, we, we, were, yeah. we, we, we saw these, uh, this actually was a Charles Band VHS called The Best of Sex and Violence, which oh, was a yeah. trailer compilation, expectation right. trailer compilation uh, hosted by John Carradine. 
and uh, <laughs> and in the center were three trailers: the uh, Dolomite Human Tornado and Disco Godfather. And they blew our minds. We wow. just couldn't believe these. these Especially were, Human Tornado trailer. Yeah, Human Tornado. Tra- if you're listening to this, I don't want to tell you not the the the, the pause, but go watch the Human Tornado trailer. It's <laughs> yes. really insane. When the show's over. Yeah, when the show's over. Um, so we were we just really thought Rudy was an was just an extraordinary character, and I saw him at the club lingerie and and oh, uh, wow. when he was older and um uh but anyway but like twelve years ago we got a phone call out of the blue that was saying that Eddie Murphy wants to meet you, and we're like oh this is cool Eddie Murphy wants to meet us and so we went down to meet Eddie Murphy and we walk in, and he's actually doing scenes from Ed Wood. He was like wow. literally by, by playing Bela Lugosi, playing Tor Johnson. Wow. And it was just like, oh my, because we were like, oh my God, uh, Eddie Murphy is doing our, doing our lines. And then he said to us, uh, you know, do you know who Rudy Ray Moore is? And we started laughing. We got instantly the idea that we knew right away that Eddie wanted to do a movie, an Ed Wood type film about Rudy Ray Moore. And it just sounded, uh, Scott and I have been very lucky. We've been able to write movies we really want to see. Right. And literally at that moment, it's like, that's a movie I want to see. And uh, um, and within a couple of days, he got us in the room with the real Rudy Ray Moore, and we hung out wow. with Rudy and talked to him about his life and uh, got his POV on things. And uh, but we couldn't set it up. It was one of those things where it seemed like really? too fringy. Even with us and Eddie at the time, it just seemed wow. like you know it's a, it's a, it's pretty far out there. It's I mean, fringy and hard. It's no further hard out art. there than Ed Wood was. You know? it, yeah, but you watch. It's more. You know, it's aggressive. Yeah, I it mean, Rudy's aggressive. act is aggressive. Yeah, That's for sure. I mean, all, yeah. you know those those X rated those X rated rhymes and you know it it, it I think yeah. it, it made people say, hmm, what what are they trying to do here? Right. Made uh, them uncomfortable. Yeah, and um, they didn't realize we were trying to write the sweetest movie that says motherfucker 600 times. You know? <laughs> um, and so years went by. and, and no, I, 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 right. I've sort of come to some kind of epiphany that the movie might have become sweeter because all this time passed. Yes, I think so too. Because we didn't write it. I mean, it was almost 20 years ago. Wow. And it's, it's sort of like now, now we're older. Right. And so, so you actually wrote a script? No, 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 we didn't write anything. Yeah. But you wanted to do this. We this did. Is... We went out and pitched it, and no right. one cared, and, and nobody cared. And then twenty years later, yeah, we basically after after um, after OJ, we had that moment of being kind of like hot, and right. we thought oh, like, yeah. oh, well, what's what's like a dream project we might get through the system that we ordinarily wouldn't get, wouldn't have happened. So we recontacted Eddie, who we hadn't talked to in 15 years, and right. he was kind of semi-retired, and he, you know, he hadn't he hadn't said the word fuck in a movie for 20 years. And right. so it was the idea like, of, like, does he, does he want to do this still? And he just, like, this is my dream project, you know it, you know, and so it all happened pretty quickly after that. So we just wrote a script now. So Netflix to the rescue. Netflix totally to the Netflix rescue. Netflix to the rescue. You yeah. know, God bless him. Uh, I mean, our producers John Davis and John Fox made a couple calls, and we were pitching to Ted Sarandos, who is the the, the king, yeah. yeah, the king of Netflix, and Ted got it. And Ted used to run video stores in the eighties, yeah. So he said Rudy kept us in business back then. Wow! So he 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 knew what Rudy meant. Amazing. Yeah. And so now you are more than writers or writer producers. I mean, along comes Johnny Versace, and and you're producing things that you didn't write. Right. Yeah, so the, I mean the movie. The the one thing we produced that we didn't write that we feel like has our real stamp on it is a movie called Autofocus, 
right. uh, the 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 Paul Schrader movie about the yeah another biopic another biopic yeah yeah and that, 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 that one we worked very right. closely with Michael Grabosi the writer and yeah yeah, yeah. Sent, spent many was, many days line by line with Michael yeah and uh, um, and Greg Kinnear I think gives a career best performance uh, in that movie He's Greg is so great right. in autofocus. It's oh so funny God. as Bob Crane. When the movie came out, it was kind of the beginning of spoiler culture, and I, I always, I always would be like, um, <laughs> in the opening credits of the movie, it says, uh, based on the book, "The Murder of Bob Crane." It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like I don't, we're seem to be giving away the end of the picture yeah, that here, aren't blows we? Everything. <laughs> Wasn't there a, 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 a? There were cuts where the murder was the opening scene. Uh, I believe there was, but that's not the film. No, not the way it ended up. No, no, but because we were stuck with that, based on. Right. There, there was a version where, yeah, where you the, just we open with the murder. With yeah. Wait, does it open with the murder? Oh, oh, this is this, is, this is sad. Oh, okay, this is, when I was a little kid, I would hear like John Lennon, like like uh, interviews with John Lennon, where he'd talk about like uh, some Beatles song, and he'd right. he, he'd refer to it as being on an album that it wasn't. It's like right. that's on Revolver. And it's like that's not on Revolver. <laughs> that's on blah blah blah. And now like, you're John. Yeah, Lennon. Well, I'm not John well, Lennon, but it's like Mick, you know, maybe you can identify with this, which is after a certain number of years and a certain number of projects. You have trouble remembering if it was shot <laughs> or if, it, yes. if, it's, if it's just in the script, if it it's, got filmed, and if it's in the final cut. Yeah. Right, yes, and you can be you can be vividly remembering a scene, and you can be picturing the star of your movie, and it never got filmed. Right, right. yeah, definitely. Okay, I, so you, you understand. Those. And as yeah. a director, even more so when it comes to sure. scenes that you shot that don't end up exactly. in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, so yeah. whether Autofocus opens with a murder... <laughs> We're not sure. <laughs> well, everybody should watch it yes. to make sure for themselves. Correct. Oh, sure. Kinnear is so good in that yes. movie. Yes. Oh, my God. And Dolomite is my name. The most current uh, yeah. Scott and Larry movie. Scott Alexander, Larry Karaszewski. Thank you so much for taking your wait, wait, time can I, can with I, us. Can I flip this before Please. you sign off? Sure. Um, can I ask you a question? If you like. Am I crazy? Or when I was in high school and we had Theta Cable, did you yes. host a show on... Public access, not on public access on, on, on the Z, Z channel. You're on Z channel. Yeah, it was. So how did you end up hosting that show? Film. What's that? How did you end up hosting that show back then? I was a journalist and I wrote about film and interviewed filmmakers and the like. And I went to the Z channel program director and um, presented the idea of the show of doing you know 15 minute interviews before wow. genre films. It was called the Fantasy Film Festival. Yeah, it was great. And we had John Carpenter and William Friedkin. So, what, 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 years, what years were those? This was uh, 79 to 81. Wow. Yeah. Was, yeah, I remember you and Charles Champlin. We were the two. Yeah. He was the, the uh, mainstream guy, and then I was the And you had the cool stuff. The guy in the gutter. Yeah. yeah. That was it. Well, thanks for remembering. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, thank you guys for a really great thank show you for and thanks. sharing some time with us. All right, great. Thank you. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to Producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com.
Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.